Good morning, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started. I'll open us up in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the time that we've had to spend together to think about you and the gospel and how it applies to our lives. And we just ask this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to the things that you would like us to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, So just as, as a quick recap... One of the things that we are doing in each of these classes is we are asking the question, how do we embed in a practical way the small story of our lives into the greater redemptive narrative? You guys remember that? So all of our life and life experiences, uh, we could say that that is a personal story, but that's not the ultimate story. The ultimate story is the story of redemption. Um, And today we're going to be looking at... uh, that in a very specific way. Now, how many of you remember ABCD? Okay, as a quick recap, A is our situation, activating event. C is the emotional or experiential consequence, what we experience in the context of A, of the situation. And what we tend to do is say that A causes C. So, if I'm in a traffic jam, that's why I'm irritated. But we are saying that A doesn't cause C. It's actually my belief about A that impacts C. So if I'm in a traffic jam and I believe um, that everyone at work is going to be angry with me and I'm going to get fired, then that's going to create some struggle emotionally. But if I believe, hey, uh, people may not be too happy with me at work, but I do live in a universe where God is sovereign. This is not an accident. Uh, This is an opportunity for me to trust in Him and I relinquish my need for control, it's going to have an impact on how I experience that situation, okay? Um, and we're going to come back to that to, today uh, after we look at a couple of things. Um, I want to start with a, two quotes. Today, the, the lesson is on Jesus, the Redeemer who has accomplished the plan. Last week, we went through just basically a chronology of Jesus' life from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament And today we're going to try to apply some of the things that that we went over last week. We'll start with a couple of quotes, one by Martin Luther. Um, He said, The words righteous and righteousness of God struck my conscience like lightning. When I heard them, I was exceedingly terrified. If God is righteous, I thought, he must punish. When by God's grace I pondered in the tower and heated room of this building... Over the words, he who through faith is righteous shall live, Romans 1.17, and the righteousness of God, Romans 3.21, I soon came to the conclusion that if we, as righteous men, ought to live from faith, and if the righteousness of God should contribute to the salvation of all who believe, then salvation won't be our merit, uh, salvation won't be our merit, but God's mercy, Martin Luther. And then Jonathan Edwards Christ is a person so dear to the Father that those who are in Christ need not be at all jealous of being accepted upon his account. If Christ is accepted, they must of consequence also be accepted, for they are in Christ, as members, as parts, as the same. They are the body of Christ, his flesh, and his bones. 
They that are in Christ Jesus are one spirit, and therefore, if God loves Christ Jesus, he must of necessity accept those that are in him and are of him. What a wonderful thought. And we're going to unpack this idea of the righteousness of God being given to us as well as uh, the implications of being found in Christ. And the question this morning, each, each week we've had a question that we center, um, center on, and it, it's a similar question that was actually brought up last week. And the question is, what did Jesus do? Um, if you remember 10 years ago or so, all the wristbands of WWJD, what would Jesus do, which is okay. But really, the, the ultimate question that we want to ask as believers in terms of our salvation is what did Jesus do? And we're going to look at that. So here's the invitation for all of us this morning. Come, everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Include your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love for David. So I want to start and I want you guys to interact with me just a little um, with a couple of questions. So here's this invitation and the invitation, why are you spending your money on things that ultimately can't satisfy? As we look at our own lives and our own culture, what do we tend to spend our resources on seeking peace, seeking comfort, seeking fulfillment? Because we have this beautiful invitation, but we all get distracted, don't we? What do we spend our money on? M- resources, yeah. Entertainment. Entertainment. Movies. Movies. Mm-hmm. All forms of entertainment. Security. Security. Yes. What What do we do to find security? What do we spend our resources and energies on to find security? We're turning our focus away from Christ and trying to do it for ourselves. We're making ourselves into a God. Mm-hmm. And, and, it needs to be honored instead of God. And, and how do we do that? What kind of things do we do that tends to put the emphasis on what we can do? Where do a lot of us find our sense of security? Job? Retirement? How we look? Image? Excellent. Any other thoughts? Big SUVs and guns. <laughs> Big SUVs and guns, possessions? Fame or being looked by, uh, on well by others? Family? I see so many parents who come to me whose children have not gone the direction they thought and they're in utter despair because their whole life was invested on creating these um, people that would look and act exactly the way they wanted and now that it's not going that way, um, they're struggling. And we all, have, we, we all have a tendency towards that, I'm sure. So here we have this wonderful invitation, come to the table. And yet, we're all so distracted. Our culture's distracted. Um, 
Here's another part of that invitation. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Um, therefore, brothers, let us draw near. The throne of grace exists by God's mercy for us to enjoy. Jesus' intercession makes this throne possible. As we commune at his royal table and feast upon the bread of life, as we quench our parched souls by consuming the life-giving water of God, it is important for us to, to consider the delights it possesses so that our minds may be genuinely nourished by its bountiful goods. As Christians, we must also invite others to feast at this same table so that their broken souls may be effectively nourished. So this morning we have this invitation. We want to sit at this beautiful table and we want to think about what it has to offer us as Christians. Therefore, let us draw near. So we want to ask the question first, what is the therefore, therefore? Why, why is he saying that? And you have to go back a few verses in Hebrews 10, 11 through 18. And it's talking about the high priest, Jesus. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here we see that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for our sins. We're going to talk about this morning what that means. Uh, he completed the work he was sent to do and took his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And then what did this single offering accomplish according to verse 14? Hebrews chapter 10. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's a profound statement. What's he saying there? It's already done, but it's still being done. Okay, what's being done and what's already done? Say that again. Making us righteous. In Christ, we are perfect, considered perfect, viewed as perfect in the eyes of God. How does that hit you? Can't believe it. It almost feels blasphemous. And it could be. I mean, we could take that in a very terrible direction. But just consider that for a moment. That in the eyes of God, uh, because of what Christ accomplished in that sacrifice, and because we are now in union with Him, we are considered perfect. And at the same time, it's the already, 
So it's already done and the not yet. So we are still in this journey within the story where we are continuing to be perfected through in all things. Remember, we've looked at eight, uh, Romans 8, 28 um, and 29. In all things, God is working to conform us into the image of Christ. So we are already before God considered righteous and holy and perfect. But he is also literally conforming us into that glorious image. Um, so what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Why, why are we able to say, uh, as the Hebrew author says, that in that sacrifice we have been perfected? First, Jesus is our propitiation. Uh, what does that mean? What is the word propitiation? Okay, Christ stood in our place. Okay, he took away God's wrath. Why did it take away God's wrath from us? Because he took it upon himself. Okay, so one of the things that Jesus accomplished in his plan is he became our propitiation. First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Um, so propitiation is the act wherein Jesus bore the wrath of God for every sin his people have or will ever commit pre and post the cross. And this just exemplifies the love that God has for each of us in this room. I mean, if you think about your life for a moment and you look back and you consider the sins that you've committed, some of them may be worse than others, that we sit in a story with a Redeemer who chose to hang on a cross in agonizing pain and receive the wrath of every one of those sins that came to mind for you as though He Himself committed them. He took the full brunt of that. Our Lord, our advocate, has exercised amazing kindness to us in that he has literally absorbed the penalty for our sins within himself. The wrath of God that our specific daily sins deserve, he bore while hanging on the cross. First uh, Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body upon the cross. The neglect of a husband, the lust and porn use of a young college student, the adultery of a wife, the hate-infested heart of the young teenage girl, angry at a friend, were all placed upon Jesus as though he himself committed such atrocities against the Father. 1 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin on our behalf. It's staggering to think and to meditate on that reality. And that's a truth for everyone in this room. And it, it helps us to find peace in that becoming a Christian doesn't free us from, doesn't guarantee that we will be freed from our struggle. But because of what Christ it does, it frees us to struggle. Why would I say that? Becoming a Christian doesn't guarantee that we will be free from struggle, even from sin. But it does free us to struggle. The sanctification process will go on until the end. That's right. Any other thoughts?
This opens the reality that a lot of us probably have to fight with. That Christians do not fight sin as a means to be accepted by God. But because God now accepts them based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are now free to fight sin for his glory. If, if I'm honest with you, there are times in struggles when it does feel that because I've sinned, I've got to sort of make it up somehow by having several days where I do better. How many of you are prone to that? I mean, it's a natural inclination. We want to, we want to write our own gospel, and we want to be the centerpiece of that gospel, and we want to be the one that accomplishes the acceptance with with Christ at times. There's just something in us that wants to do that. But because Christ has accomplished what he's accomplished, it frees us to fight sin, not in hopes that God will like us more or not. It helps us fight sin as a means of worship. It helps us actually fight sin motivated by the very things that Jesus said all the laws and commands are summed up in. We fight sin because we love this God who has done so much for us. We are compelled by his mercy and compelled by his kindness towards us that that begins to drive a hatred for sin to the glory of God. Let's come back to Jeff and Sarah. I'm going to reread the case study just to refresh our minds. But I think when we're able to... um, when we're able to navigate these truths in a real-life situation outside of ourselves, um, it can be helpful. So here's Jeff and Sarah again. Uh, They've been married for 14 years. Sarah's disclosed that for the majority of their marriage, she has lived in a chronic state of fear and anxiety. She says that she is constantly walking on eggshells to prevent Jeff from going into a rage, especially when their two children are present. Her attempts to protect the children have often failed. Jeff has never physically abused Sarah, but he has used physical intimidation and control by blocking doorways when she wanted to leave or by destroying her possessions, uh, such as a special photo album that she put together, artwork that she has completed. He's broken dishes. Sarah also says she is always second-guessing herself because Jeff is very crafty in convincing her that his anger is her fault. Initially, Jeff attempted to blame shift in counseling by accusing Sarah of passive-aggressive behavior. He framed his anger as being caused by her emotional and physical neglect and her unwillingness to submit to him in all things. Eventually, Jeff began to take responsibility for his anger, and he seems to be making genuine attempts towards change. Currently, Jeff is becoming frustrated because after three months of working towards loving his wife in a gentle and patient manner, so he's, he's been working for three months, doing better, Um, Sarah continues to be extremely fearful of moving towards him physically or emotionally. She avoids much interaction with him. Jeff is beginning to question if she will ever move beyond her fears and concerns. Sarah is very confused. She believes God wants her to work to restore her relationship, but feels paralyzed. Um, She feels she is too emotionally broken to engage Jeff again. Both are professing Christians and their church is taking a hands-off stance. So, Let's come back to ABCD and let's talk about this couple for a moment. Uh, What beliefs might Jeff be tempted to ponder? What beliefs might control his mind when he remembers and starts thinking about how abusive he's been to his wife? I mean, he's getting better. 
Uh, he's moving in the right direction, but boy, he thinks back to a year ago. He thinks back to six months ago, and the guilt just overwhelms him. What kind of thoughts might consume him in his weaker moments? I'm too bad to be forgiven. That's a good one. It would be easier just to start over. Okay. With somebody else. Okay. It would be easier to start over with someone that I didn't share this past with. Good. What else? Maybe another woman could tell me how to do better with my wife. Okay. Maybe another woman could help me learn how to with her. Okay. Do better with my wife. I can't really change. I mean, look how far I've gone. Is it really possible that I can make the changes I need for her to to trust me again? Okay. To be honest, I would say I tried. It didn't work. It's still your fault. Okay. I tried. It didn't work. Look how you're not responding to me. It's all your fault. Okay. (laughs) I said I was being honest. That's good. It's a very honest answer. So you said that the church is taking a hands-off approach. He may also be thinking, like, if the church is not even, you know, willing to forgive me, how has God forgiven me for this? That's a very good point. If the church is taking a hands-off and, and he's interpreting that as they're not forgiving me, then how could God forgive me for this? It's a great point. Other thoughts? One more. The fear of, I've changed, but I could always go back to what I used to be. This was a pretty bad problem for me. Okay. And even as you guys give those answers, I mean, I've thought many of those things before. So we can see ourselves in Jeff. And all of us have the tendency to give in to self-condemnation. No matter your perspective on Romans chapter 7, you know, was Paul converted at the time or not, um, the passage is very applicable either way. You, You see Paul struggling, the things I know I shouldn't have done, shouldn't do, I do, the things I know I should do, I'm not doing. Um... And he goes into this place, oh, what a wretched man that I am. And even as Christians, we can do that. Um, back and forth, wrestling, and the tendency, oh, what a wretched man that I am. We always come back to ourselves. We always come back to, I, I'm, I'm not meeting the standard. Therefore, there's condemnation for me. Um, what beliefs might Jeff be tempted to when he finds himself currently irritated with his wife during her current struggles. So the first question points to his past. It points to the guilt that tries to hold on to him. The, the, the second question is, all right, I'm doing my best. And, and you touched this. But I'm doing my best. I've given three months of my life to counseling. I'm, I'm not throwing dishes anymore. I'm not breaking things anymore. I'm not yelling at you anymore. And you will barely have a conversation with me. Okay, he's tempted towards getting frustrated. What What kind of... Uh, what beliefs and thoughts might he be tempted towards when he finds himself irritated like this? 
Is the effort really worth it? There's really no progress or change here. I'm doing my part. What's wrong with her? I'm doing my part. What's wrong with her? So far, all I hear is I, 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 I. A lot of I statements. That's good. That's good. And that actually points to the very next question. Where is Jeff's focus when his mind goes into these places? It's really upon himself. And that second question, you know, here he is. um, He's doing some good things. But his heart is also being revealed. Okay? I remember... um, Paul Tripp's written a book called War of Words. And I remember reading a little clip in there where he talks about a husband who wanted to take his wife out on a date and just have a wonderful evening. And so he put in all of this effort and all of this energy, um, made reservations at a very nice restaurant, went and bought her a dozen roses, Really had not told her about this. He was going to surprise her with it. Um, really built it up in his own mind of how awesome this was going to be, gets home, uh, wife is in her bathrobe, children are running all over the house. He says, hey, sweetheart, why don't you go ahead and go get cleaned up? I've got a great evening planned for us, and I'm doing it all for you. And she looks at him and says, sweetheart, if you really want to help me out, um, would you just take the kids out for the night and let me bathe and go to bed? And he just became furious. What did that reveal about him? He wasn't really doing the date for her. It was really more about himself. And and it seems like Jeff is is in the same dilemma, that there's probably a big part of himself that wants to get rid of this anger. But maybe even he wants to do that just so he doesn't have to experience guilt feelings. But there's another part of him that he wants to do this so that ultimately his wife will do what he wants her to do. So it, it, it's, it's a little softer. It's not as, it, it's not as blatant. But the, the underlying issues are still at play. She's not doing it my way. Uh, I, I still want a form of control over her. If I do X, you should do Y. Okay? So here he is in, in, in one way probably has some good motives. In another way, still very sinful motives. How... Does propitiation reorient Jeff's thoughts? Let's, let's take the first question first in terms of his past. So I was, it's kind of with what you're just saying okay. as well. Yes. Um, I know for me, a lot of times he does come into effect. And so if I believe that God is doing it for me, with me, through me, mm-hmm. or if I believe that I'm responsible for making the change myself mm-hmm. and that any failures in progress are my fault and not that I'm making progress with God who is strengthening me and helping me and guiding me through this change. Yeah. So that would make a big difference in my reaction. Yes. And something that's very important, we're, what we're talking about here applies is and I have, to, I have to sit patiently with people that I work with, trying to protect them from a legalistic self-condemnation. Um, you know, I, I've had uh, men busted for pornography or even adultery who for about three weeks seemed very contrite and 
hey, I'm not struggling with that anymore. I don't even think about going to a computer, et cetera, et cetera. About a month out, oh my gosh, you know what I did this week, Jeremy? I looked at images. And so we do practical things. You know, repentance is very important. But we also have to remember um, that even in that fall, uh, there, there's something even in the fall where you have opportunity to glorify Christ. You didn't glorify Christ by falling, but how you respond to that. It's either going to be condemnation or it's going to be apathy or it's going to be uh, callousness or it's going to be, wow, this is a moment for me to really contemplate Jesus Christ. Yes, that's right. So uh, along that line, let's let's come back to Jeff. What does propiti- How does propitiation? How might it re- re- reorient his thought life? So he's he's struggling with guilt. Look how bad I've been. Maybe the church can't forgive me. Maybe I'm unforgivable. Maybe I'm too bad. And we bring in Christ in in this propitiation. So it's a difference in the mind and the heart. And again, I'm, re- I'm repeating because... They both have, the mind has to, so when I begin to meditate in my struggle on Christ and what he's done for me, there's, there's transforming that will begin to unfold. Just because Jeff doesn't have the marriage he wants yet is not a punishment from God, right? And we can say that because all of the punishment for Jeff and his sin and his foolishness went where? So if Jesus, if God the Father were to mete out one ounce of punishment against Jeff, what does that do about the work of the cross? It wasn't sufficient. It is finished wasn't really a true statement. And that's a marvelous thought. I think there's a little bit of a step missing there. You could, you could easily change that from Jeff and Sue to Chris and Sue. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an angry, controlling, manipulative. We've had terrible struggles in the past you know, because of this, this very thing. And it, for me, getting to that point of brokenness, I think a lot of Jeff's problem um, is that he doesn't really think he's the problem, or is a problem, and so he really doesn't cry out to God for, for brokenness, or for healing, or for help, because he really does think it's Sue's problem, or it's somebody else's problem, or it's somebody else's problem, he never even goes to the cross yeah. to, to get that true repentance. Say, I'm the problem. Mm-hmm. I need, I need to be. What I'm doing is not working. I can't make it work. It's good. Know, I'm, I'm out of solutions. Uh, and that, that brokenness, I think, long term is what starts that cycle of 
Good. So the idea that in order for us to even appreciate the things of the cross and the things that Christ has done for us, there has to be a genuine brokenness, a heart of godly sorrow, true repentance, um, and taking responsibility and ownership that my anger is not caused by someone else. It's something in me that's going on. And we'll, we'll be touching those things in um, future classes. Uh, what we're talking about right now is a big part of the process of change. It's not all we want to do, though, okay? Because we do want... Remember, um, we are also being perfected, and we have a role in engaging with God and in, in what He has given us through Scripture. So what we're talking about right now is huge, but it, there's more also. Not in terms of we add anything to what Christ has done, but, but we're engaging in this redemptive process through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, according to the purposes and plans of God. Um, one more question about this couple moving to the wife. What beliefs do you think Sarah might be struggling with currently in the midst of her inability to just get over this? Move towards him. And I completely agree. Three months is no time at all. But I've had wives one week into this saying, I should, I should be better. I'm such a bad wife. Okay. So it's hard because she's chosen to forgive him but she still finds herself wrestling with moving towards him. So what might she be thinking about herself in that struggle? What's wrong with me? Why can't I do what God tells me to do? Maybe I haven't really forgiven him or I'd be able to be in a relationship with him. Yeah, maybe I haven't forgiven him or I would be able to be in a relationship. Why can't I, why can't I just do what God's told me to do? Um, Okay. So maybe he's right about me. The messages of her husband, which is basically you're a terrible wife unless you can make me happy. And so how, how might propitiation reorient her thoughts? You know, maybe there is some, some sin. I mean, if we look at the perfect standard of love and her own brokenness preventing her from doing that, maybe there's something going on there where... She's not being obedient, but we understand that, and we would never tell her, you just need to start loving your husband um, and get over this. That would be cruel. But if she's wrestling with that, that I feel I'm really, there's something sinful going on in me because I do kind of resent my husband. I don't like him anymore. 
but I don't want to feel that way. I want to move towards him. How, how might propitiation reorient her thoughts? Yes. And you connected them to things that we do. Yes. So I think it's something to do with that, but I don't know if there's a quick answer without going through that list. Okay. And seeing where it connects with her right now. So actually, let's move along that line because I want to have you look at that list. Okay? So one side of the coin, propitiation. He absorbed every sin. So this, this poor couple that's struggling, all the complexities that are going on, Jesus bore that upon himself where sin is concerned. The other side of the coin is he's also our righteousness. Okay, So he took the punishment for every sinful deed we would commit, and then he accounts to us the righteousness of his own life as though we had done that ourselves. So in Christ's union with us, he completely identifies himself with our sin and judgment and so bears it upon himself. In this same union, we are completely identified with him in his perfect righteousness before the Father and therefore completely identified with the full favor and love the Father has for the Son. In union with him, we have his standing before the Father and acceptance with the Father. In union with him, the Father delights to do us good all of our days. When we are united to Christ, the words the Father spoke to Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, becomes the Father's anthem uh, anthem towards us as well. So, Romans 4, 22, 5 and 1, uh, as through uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And there are many passages like this in Scripture. We'll just look at one. This is why his faith, Abraham, was counted to him as righteous. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for us for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's this idea that in union with Christ... We are made righteous. Whatever is true of Christ becomes true of us in Christ. It's a staggering theological proposition. So we are in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Galatians 3.27 or Colossians 3.1-3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden in Christ. All of those terrible deeds are hidden under the righteousness of Christ. Herman Ritterboss, a theologian, states uh, this idea of being in Christ, says this, This is evident even from the fact that being in Christ crucified, dead, raised, seated in heaven with him, obviously does not have the sense of a communion that becomes reality only in certain sublime moments, but rather of an abiding reality, determinative for the whole of the Christian life, to which appeal can be made at all times, in all sorts of connections, and with respect to the whole church without distinction. 
So let's go back. Well, we've got a couple of minutes. Let's go back to Jeff and Sarah. And on the second page of the handout, and maybe this is something you guys can continue to have a conversation with one another uh, after today. Um, But look at the handout for this morning. Just have one person tell me which of which moment in Jesus's life are particularly and personally relevant to Jeff? Just find one and read it. Jesus exhibited flawless faith in the Father when under extreme mental and emotional duress. Okay. What about for Sarah? So we see in the life of Christ, he chose to subject himself to very particular situations uh, as a means of experiencing our own suffering and responding to those things with utter perfection in order to give us that very record in our own failure. And if you look through that list, you'll see several that are applicable for Jeff and several that are applicable for Sarah and many that are applicable for you. And one of the questions uh, that I want to ask, and we don't have to answer this, but I want to leave you with this question because this is really where I'm going with this particular section. What are some thoughts and meditations about Jesus uh, or what thoughts and meditation about Jesus might Jeff and Sarah formulate from these connections. So what I would want to help them with is is as they're connecting with how personal Jesus was in his life and how, how relevant that is to the details of their own experience, I want them to reflect and, and maybe write meditations or write a personal psalm of praise and worship to Christ for willing to subject himself to specific struggles and how that relates to their own heart and their own life. I want to push them into communion with God. I don't want them to navel gaze and make it all about themselves. I want them to see this propitiation and Christ, our righteousness, as something that draws them into communion with Him, that creates a glorious awe of the, the love that drove such a willingness to do what Jesus did for them. And I would encourage each of you in this room, whenever you're facing a stress, whenever you're facing a conflict, whenever you've stubbed your toe once again on the same struggle, rather than making it about you. Now, we do need to take responsibility. We do need to be sorrowful for our sins because we're sinning against a person who did all of this for us. But we don't just need to hang out there. We need to always come back to the table that we started with this morning and think about the delights of the gospel of Jesus Christ and pray that God would create in us a true awe for who he is. Let me pray. Father, we're really just scratching the surface of these topics and yet it's stunning to think about. And all we can do this morning The only thing we can do is lift our empty hands to you and receive what you've given and say thank you and ask that you would turn our hearts toward you through these great mercies that you've extended to us. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right.